are listening to the Fuerte Network. Hola y bienvenidos a We Are Home, Arizona, an immigration podcast. Today we have a very special episode for everyone. Immigration justice is climate justice. My name is Carlos Yanez Navarro. I am here with my co-host, Dani Orona. And a little later, we have a very special guest, someone who we love having on the show, Karina Dominguez. But to start us off, Dani, ¿cómo estás? Hello, Carlos. Muy buenas tardes a todos los que están escuchando. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I'm very good and excited to talk about this topic and something that we usually don't think of hand in hand. We're talking about climate and immigration. You know, it's something that a lot of people don't associate with each other. But surprisingly, well, surprising to me to find out that so much of it overlaps. Yeah, of course. And I think very recently there's been a lot of discussions about the intersections of oppression, the intersectionality of different movements. I think it really became apparent when the Black Lives Matter movement began that a lot of our, our forms of oppression are very interconnected. And it makes sense, right? Like we all breathe the same air. We all drink the same water. We're all living on the same land. So how wouldn't migration be connected to climate justice, right? Exactly. And in reading all this is all these things that you just mentioned right now seem so like easy to think about it it should be so obvious like as i'm reading all this is like yeah that is true wow how come i never thought of it that way and so hopefully it'll open eyes to other people who are not looking at this as a main reason that people start to migrate themselves yeah we, we all know the main ones you know hmm. escaping poverty escaping violence trying to find jobs trying to find stability but we don't think about es escaping what is going on to not literally not let them live where they are right now mm-hmm Yeah, and a little bit about that to give you guys a, a little bit of background. I know we talk about refugees and migration and asylum seekers a lot. And just to give everyone a little background, today we're going to be talking a lot about climate refugees. Uh, and if you do not know what a climate refugee is, is someone who migrated, like Danny said. Uh, there's a lot of reasons that people migrate to seek food, shelter, safety, a better life. But climate refugees in specific are migrants who have migrated because of climate instability. And this is very, very interesting and very important because under refugee law, In the 1951 Convention on Refugees, there is not really a mention on climate refugees. And as we go more into the 21st century, as there's more droughts, as there's more extraction of resources in Latin America and different countries by Northern European and European countries, uh, there's not really a lot of protections for individuals who are migrating because of climate instability. So, for example, like, let's say I am from a country in Latin America, right? There's been a lot of drought, so I can't grow food. So what am I going to do? I'm going to move and I'm going to go somewhere that where I can uh, grow food or where I can find a better opportunity for myself and for my family, basically to survive. But how am I going to do that? How am I going to go into a new country? Am I going to ask for protection? Am I going to ask for asylum? What do I do? But at the end of the day, under those laws and under those acts and under international asylum law, people who migrate because of climate instability are not eligible for protection. Right. So basically in that scenario, if I were to be the person at the border, like checking on why are you here? Okay, you have not had a crime against you. You have not been beaten. You, your family has not been attacked. You are not like, oh, you don't fit any of these categories. So no, you are not allowed to be in here. You, you don't have a good reason under the law to be here. Mm -hmm. That is their logic that's going on right now. And it's very outdated logic. Yeah, and I think the the logic about that just hasn't evolved. We've been using the same systems for the last 60 years, but the world is super, super different from 60 years ago. Now we have more droughts. There's less rain in a lot of areas. Heat is rising. Global temperatures are rising. And that's going to cause a lot of movement. 
a lot of that also the what you just mentioned right now triggers a lot of people global warming isn't real you guys it's still cold in wherever i live it still snows like people need to understand that over these past few decades the changes in temperature do not only affect this one thing yes it still snows in connecticut that doesn't mean that the temperatures are not rising elsewhere Think about the sea levels, thinking about the polar ice caps. Have you seen the pictures of like 50 years yeah. ago to where they are now? It is it, it is very, very disturbing to see these type of things. And we've even seen it in the Colorado River. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the Colorado River and the, the dam that gives us all our water. Where it used to be. Where it used to be. And mm-hmm. for now, it's it's terrifying. Like there's barely any water left. And and that's like the water we drink. That, yeah. that, that is that is what sustains us like Arizona as we know we're not very big on uh rain we don't oh, yeah. rely on you know the sky to give us much of uh, our our hydration it's the Colorado River so this is something that that needs to be done right now because people used to say what 2030 2040 like they, these are the, these are uh, dates are approaching fast yeah and I think it brings us into the conversation of the fact that we have the technology and we have the infrastructure and we have basically the money to mitigate those things so not everyone is going to feel climate change and not everyone is going to feel those effects at the same time because we have things that allow us to mitigate them for a longer period of time not saying that we won't feel climate change at the end of the day it's just saying that people with in countries with less technology to to mitigate loss of water or less technology to mitigate uh, crop die-off people without those kinds of of mitigating factors We'll feel climate change earlier and we'll feel climate change to a much more increased degree than than us in the United States. Because at the end of the day, we do live in, in a very high income industrialized nation and not saying that there's a lot of different communities inside the United States that will also feel the impacts of climate change, mostly uh, black and brown communities, because there are less infrastructure in those communities. But overall, our country will be OK for a little while longer than other countries, not saying that you know climate change won't impact us all in the end. So now back to the migration portion, because those countries that don't have what it takes to actually mitigate the climate change, as as it were, what are some factors that goes into those countries that makes people have to leave their homes to seek out a new future elsewhere? Yeah, I think mostly as as global temperatures rise, you have a disruption of of the water cycle, a disruption of the of the food web. People start migrating because there's no food available, and that disrupts the economy and uh, it just really messes with with the social structure of of, of countries. Uh, so people can't feed themselves and people can't find water for themselves. What are they supposed to do? Just stay there and do nothing? I think a lot of us, especially our families, you know, we didn't migrate because of climate instability, specifically in my case. But we did migrate because there were better opportunities and we did migrate because we were in danger of not being able to feed ourselves. So I think it's the same thing. There shouldn't really be a classification system for migrants. People migrate to to be able to live and to be able to find a safe place to to continue their life. And I think that should be true for everyone. What effects do American, Canadian and European countries have on these South American countries per se to make the, the people have to move as well? Yeah, of course. I think a lot about different different companies, right? There was a lot of Canadian mining companies going into countries like Peru and Ecuador mining for, for gold and other different types of minerals, but they were leaving behind a lot of poisonous waste. So there was a case where Canadian mining companies 
uh, really destroyed the water quality for a lot of people living in the Amazon region, which basically poisoned the water supply for 4,000 people. Uh, and you see a lot of those instances in a lot of individual areas, big, big companies from the Northern Hemisphere and from very rich countries go into these countries. They try to extract resources to take back to, to Northern and, and more developed countries and they leave behind a mess. And usually they don't have to clean it up because who's gonna keep them accountable? Who's gonna right. stop them from poisoning water supplies? Who's gonna stop them from deforesting different types of ecological systems? There's just a lot of very big gaps in in the protections that, that people are able to, to use against these companies. Yeah, because pretty much at the end of the day, this mess that I'm leaving is not in my house, so it's not my problem. I get yeah. here, I get what I want, I get what I need, make myself richer, and then y'all can... If y'all want to stay here, go ahead and clean up this mess yourselves. Yeah, and I think people forget that our earth is connected. You know, the, the things that people do in, in other countries is going to affect us over here, too. You start deforesting other areas of the world. You start seeing the effects here as well. As as the Amazon rainforest has has gotten less less forested, there's less forest cover. People are using it for for cattle farming. People are destroying it. We start seeing the effects in, in other areas of the world, other systems. Temperatures start rising and, you know, there's a big disruption in, in the balance of the world, basically. And when we talk about places like the Amazon rainforest, like things like that disappearing, it's not just the forest itself. It's not just the trees and the plants. I mean, there are probably millions of species that live in there, hundreds of thousands of ecosystems that rely one another and uh, you take one thing away, like a tree, how many of those animals are affected by that? So yeah, in, right. in turn from there, one animal affects the other animal. And if that animal is a food supply for another one, they get affected. And it's just this domino effect that gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, which is why I think you see a lot of stuff in the news when, when one species goes extinct, you start seeing a domino effect and kind of a collapse of that ecosystem. And I think also there's another discussion on on indigenous rights. There's a lot of indigenous people that live on those types of lands. So this also is on indigenous rights and the indigenous right to, you know, be on your ancestral ancestral homeland. So there's just a lot of different areas and a lot of different problems that this creates because there's not only migration, there's not only climate justice, but there's always there's also indigenous rights and there's also the right to belong on your own land and stay there and be able to live. And also, I mean, moving on from from other parts of the world, we even see this at the U.S.-Mexico border where the border wall really destroyed a lot of ecosystems and it really messed up a lot of communities. There were indigenous communities there before the border wall. So a lot of the people that were already there kind of got separated by this thing that was just put there by the U.S. government. And there's a statistic from National Geographic that uh, kind of said that there was a disconnect of a third of 346 native wildlife species because of the border wall. Animals migrate just as humans do. So when you put a big wall in the middle of their ecosystem, you kind of prevent them from from moving and finding shelter and water. Yeah. Can you imagine being wild cattle, wild horses, you know, wolves, coyotes that are out there? It's like, okay, uh, sorry, you are a Mexican wolf. You can no longer hunt on U.S. property. Yeah. So stay on your side of the wall. Like these are animals that naturally do it. Because that is the way that things have always happened. Just like humans used to just move around mm. because that is the way we were pretty much meant to be. We were meant to move around and look for what best suits our lifestyle. And putting this wall right there, we can understand it as humans because there's a wall there. Mm. What is a wolf going to think? Right? Like, que pedo. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to go eat, like, on the other side. Like, <laughs> And uh, so, so I mean, that right there, the, the species being affected, that's just going to affect more and more, like we said, those domino effects, 
the audacity of us like telling mother nature how to do its business i think humans in specific have a big ego like we're not above the planet and we're not above mother nature like a lot of our decisions and a lot of these policies are going to come back to bite us like in the butt like it's and it's going to happen I do want to say I am no I am no like climate specialist. I don't really work with with those types of of policies or those ideas, which is why Dani and I asked Karina Dominguez to come on because she is someone who studied that and she is someone who works with climate justice and in the communities. So I did want to introduce our special guest, Karina Dominguez. Uh, Karina, ¿cómo estás? Hi, Carlos. I'm doing good. How are both of you? Happy to be back. I keep saying that I'm not going to be back and then I'm back. <laughs> we love it every time, man. And we love it. <laughs> so I did want to ask, can you give us a little background on on yourself and on sustainability? I know together we've talked about migration a lot and mm -hmm. we've talked about your background in migration, but would you be able to give us a little walkthrough on, on your background and, and your life in, in the sustainability field and in the climate justice field? Yes, so I graduated from ASU with a bachelor's in sustainability, and I'm going to be completely honest, ASU is a white institution, and a lot of these majors never go into the root causes of our issues. So for me, majoring in sustainability was kind of just setting like some basics down, but in reality, like being involved in the community just facing firsthand what the climate is doing is what I feel like, you know, really gives you a perspective rather than like this education. Like, for example, you know, living in Maryville, you notice that, you know, we don't have as many trees maybe as places as North Phoenix, as Fountain Hills, Scottsdale. It's way hotter and you can even see it on the road when you see like the heat coming up. It's the urban heat island effect and that is most prevalent in Maryville and in South Phoenix and we know that in these two communities we have a majority of people of color uh, BIPOC communities living here. So with Fuerte I'm currently the climate justice program lead and what we're currently focusing on is examining like environmental racism uh, specifically again in Maryville and South Phoenix and comparing it to other communities that are predominantly white and you know, are just have higher incomes. And we also want to explore how we can get more green spaces in Maryville and South Phoenix. So that's kind of what we've been working on this year. Hopefully in the future we can, you know, come together and get all of these new green spaces in our communities to help fight some of these climate issues. And I had the privilege of helping you with one of those projects that you're currently working on right now. I don't know how much you can speak on it at this moment, but it's really eye-opening stuff to see these type of things side by side where it's it's the same city. We're like 10 miles apart, and yet the difference in what the environment around you can look like in the same city based on different, like you said, different incomes and different backgrounds. Yes, so that is going to be a photo essay comparing environmental racism in South Phoenix and in Fountain Hills. And yeah, as you said, we went to a park in South Phoenix and a park in Fountain Hills. And the one in Fountain Hills, it's so nice. It's crazy. There's like a million different types of trees, flowers. Uh, there was a bunch of art. Uh, there was like golf and 
playgrounds and the little water slides or whatever they're called. It's crazy to see how much greenery there was there and how many people were actually like walking and using the streets. Because when you come to like South Phoenix, Maryville, like you hardly see people walking because it's so hot and just that it's not built for for walkability. But yes, that should be coming soon. It should be up in the Fuerte website. And whenever that's ready, we'll let you all know through the podcast. And I know we mentioned a lot the word climate justice. Would you be able to give us a, a little rundown on what that means? Basically, climate justice, you know, it's a term, but it's also a movement that acknowledges that climate change can have differing social, economic, public health, and other adverse impacts on underprivileged populations. And advocates of climate justice are striving to have these inequalities addressed head on through long-term mitigation and adaptation strategies. So, you know, that's a big definition and there's so much that goes into it, but just to put it in simple terms, you know, Things like how we mentioned at the beginning, immigrant justice is climate justice, uh, social justice, economic justice is climate justice, because what climate change is doing is showing us how all of the inequalities that currently exist are, you know, becoming greater. And it's just amplifying basically every inequality that we currently have. So in order to achieve climate justice, we will have to solve all of these other injustices and all of these systems of oppression that are affecting us. And uh, just to, uh, to to give people a little bit of perspective of what the mission actually is, when you mentioned like climate justice, oh, it affects different people different ways. One of the main things that people hit back with like it's climate, it's going to affect everyone the same. Of course, it's going to be the same 100 degrees here than it is in your part of town just because they we're more well off than you. We're all affected by the same weather. It's like, no, our the, the mission here is to show examples of how it is being affected differently like with your photo essay that's going on right now you can see side by side the different levels of um of maintenance different levels of strategies that are used to fight it in low income with high income communities so these are things that you can see these are things that you can feel these are examples that can be had you can have in front of you and you can see it affects different people of different incomes in different ways yeah and how you mentioned at the beginning you know south phoenix and north phoenix what are like what a couple of miles apart mm -hmm. but south phoenix and maryville are hotter than the rest of phoenix and that's just a fact so even though we all may have the same 100 degrees in maryville and south phoenix it might be 115 because we don't have enough trees to create shade or absorb some of that heat and that's super interesting because i think it also goes into the discussion on, on public health and and how individuals are doing i know in low-income communities and BIPOC communities, there's a big um, instances of, of chronic diseases and there's a mm -hmm. lot higher instances of, of higher blood pressure and it, trees and greenery have been shown to really help with like mood and, and, and health and, and blood pressure and have even been shown to relax people. So I think um, it's interesting to see that this really messes up everything about individuals' lives. Yeah, no, green spaces, yeah, you you mentioned it, they affect everything, they affect our mood, they affect, you know, our health. If there's a green space, you're more likely to go out and do, like, physical activity. Just being in a space, especially in a city where there's nature and there's not just, you know, a bunch of cars, a bunch of city noise going on, like, that's going to de-stress you and just make your day and your health better. We have a lot of questions. <laughs> um, and we really want to like uh, go off of your expertise. So I think the first thing that I really wanted to ask you, how does climate justice in your eyes intersect with immigration and migrant rights? 
I think a lot of the times when we're talking about climate change and migration, we speak about it as if it's something that's going to happen in the future. Like, oh, you know, in a few years when climate change gets worse, we're going to have all of these climate refugees. But the reality is that since 2008, an average of 26.4 million people have been displaced from their homes by extreme weather disasters every single year. So again, that's 26.4 million people every year. And by 2050, the World Bank estimates that there will be at least 143 million climate refugees, largely from Latin America, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Southeast Asia. And this is a very conservative number. So in reality, it could be way higher than this. This is happening right now. It's happening right now at the border. And it's also happening internally. People are moving because where they're living, it's just not safe to be there anymore. Pretty much what we're saying right here, this is planet Earth and we're running out of places to live. Yeah, and I think how Karina was saying internally, uh, we... I think we're seeing it right now in Arizona and California where mm -hmm. it's in some places it's too hot or there's not enough water. I know people are are moving and trying to find new places to live. Like off air, we were talking about Texas and how the big freeze, the the crazy stuff that happened with, with the power grid, all of that. People started moving because they saw that, you know, maybe they didn't want to live somewhere where, where those extreme weather events were, were happening. Exactly. Um, there was this one case of a very disfortunate family that left the deep freeze to go to Cancun in order to shield themselves from it. Oh, is it? Was it our bestie? Our bestie, Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he had the privilege, you know, of being able to get on a plane and leave until everything got better. But some people don't have that privilege. Yeah, and not mm -hmm. everyone has the money to be able to internally move. Mm -hmm. I think we are talking about international migration, but people migrate, like Karina was saying, internally and domestically. So. As, as climate change get, gets worse and people have to start moving, you're also going to see like big patterns inside of the country too, right? Yeah, like we were mentioning, the U.S., as we know, and other, you know, Western nations are very anti-immigrant, very xenophobic. These countries are telling people at the border like, no, you can't come here. But imagine if the U.S. government were to tell somebody in Texas when the freeze happened, like, no, you can't move to another part of Texas. No, you can't move to another state to, you know, try to find a safe place for you and your family. So I think when people in the United States are for or are against immigration, think about like, what if it were to happen to you? What if somebody were to tell you like, no, you can't move within your state? It's pretty much the same thing. And I don't I don't even think you have to imagine it like it's happening right now. Earlier, we we're talking about the Colorado River. And I think that's the the biggest one in my mind of something that's happening right now. It's scary and terrifying to see how low the water level is. So what happens when the Colorado River runs dry? Mm -hmm. There's four states that depend on that water. What if we're told, oh, no, you can't move out of Arizona because the other states don't want you? Like, imagine yeah. how that'll feel if that ever becomes a reality. It's crazy to think about. And I think... You know, we'll see in a few years how that goes down. So that kind of brings us into how you see climate change impacting immigration policy decisions, especially right now and in the future. Yeah, I think, as I mentioned, with like all the xenophobia, it's very hard to see how policies will change. Because if we continue to be a country that, you know, has politicians gain power by being anti-immigrant, like our policies aren't going to change. So it's it's just sad not knowing what's going to happen. I think something that, you know, 
the immigrant movement and the climate movement can do to ensure that, you know, policy gets put into place that allows people to to migrate. It's just get together and talk because a lot of the times each movement kind of stays in their lane. They're like, we're going to do just things related to immigration, whatever that means, just things related to climate. But we have to start talking to one another and coming up with solutions together. Because as we said, all of this is intersecting. And I think us coming together is also just bringing more power to each movement. And we're with that, we're going to be able to bring political pressure to all of these politicians that, you know, are anti-immigrant. How do we go about telling elected officials that these issues are intersectional? That immigration policy can have unintended consequences for ecological systems and border communities. A lot about what Karina was saying about putting power into different movements and making sure that they're intersectional. I think as as part of all of our movements, there's a lot of, you know, talking with elected officials, talking with politicians and ensuring that our agendas are put onto the electorate. So imagine if all of us are talking about climate change, talking about how climate change is going to affect our individual issues. I think that would be really powerful. Like, I remember when we were in D.C. In, in December, there were a lot of different marches and a lot of different issues mm-hmm. going around. So imagine if all of the individuals that were there were also talking about climate change and bringing it to the forefront. I think that would have been very powerful. And I think it's going to take all of us, not just one section of the movement. I think it's going to take everyone available to be able to fight this. Because at the end of the day, you know, citizenship for all or migrant rights won't matter if we don't have like water to drink or like if the air is poisoned. Or if the land we're on is unable to to produce fruit or produce trees, the things that we breathe, you know. So all of this affects everyone. It's good for us to have these conversations, but we also actually have to act. I was reading an article that said that about 40% of Americans are having conversations about climate change. And that's not even 50, right? Like what's going on with the other 60%? Right. And I think a big reason why... It's difficult to have these conversations is because they're hard to visualize. A lot of the times it's numbers, uh, you know, how many degrees the earth is going to increase in temperature. And it's very difficult to see these big changes in our minds. So something that we can do is humanize the issue. We have to be able to tell our personal stories and how things are affecting us the way they are because... You know, if somebody comes tell you like, hey, you know, the increase in temperatures made it for me to not be able to grow food. Like you can't deny that. And it's I think it's easier for people to deny deny numbers and all of these like scientific words because they don't understand what they actually mean. And it's hard to understand. Even like internally in the United States, I, I saw that there was a really big crop failure, I think, in Kansas. So I think when you see that and you see what that looks like and how that affects even farmers in the United States. Like you start seeing like, oh shit, like this is real and this is scary because, you know, our systems of of food and like our supply chains are very, very fragile. And I think we saw that with COVID where like one little disruption, like kind of destroyed everything. There was nothing on the store shelves. Like there was no toilet paper. Like one little disruption really does create like a domino effect, both like in ecosystems and in our own like lives. But I do want to leave everyone off with, I, I know all of this is like terrifying and it makes me sad. A dire situation. Yeah, like, oh my God. like Existential crisis. <laughs> now, now I want to cry. Like there's a lot of stuff we can do. And I think Karina is a very big example of someone that's putting in the work and doing a lot of stuff to be able to mitigate and to bring a lot of this stuff to our, to, to people's attention. So I think Karina, is, is there anything you want to say to people that 
you know, feel like hopeless in the situation? Like, how are they able to act? This is so hard because I've been crying about climate change all week. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, the IPAC report. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you all saw, it's going off topic a little bit, but those climate scientists that protested at the Chase Bank and they got arrested because Chase is one of the biggest investors in fossil fuel. And yeah, that was just so sad. And it's hard to stay optimistic when, you know, you're hearing all of these things about how we're there's not really like much we can change after this but the reality is that you know the earth has faced so many things over the years that it's going to find a way to come back like the earth has that ability we just have to stop getting in the way of it yeah we have to start talking about the root causes because a lot of the things like you know recycling and you know maybe taking shorter showers like of course all of those things help but who are the big enemies who are like the big polluters um like fossil fuel companies like we have to divest from fossil fuel turn to renewable energy and the way that we can do that is one like getting informed about all of these issues and then you know voting for people who will actually create these changes and if these changes aren't going to happen then we'll have to like go out in the streets and demand for it but we really have to to look at the root cause because if we keep putting like band-aid solutions it's not going to be quick enough we have to be quick and i really like what you said about um the the world's ability to like heal itself i think people forget like that the earth was was here before us and whatever happens it'll be here after us but the world has a really big like regenerative ability so i think if like how you were saying like if we help it and we help heal it like i think we can like oh my god i'm gonna like pull out avatar <laughs> <laughs> we can restore balance to the world yes yes i love it um but yeah i know it's easy to feel hopeless and you know i'm now i'm kind of sad too but <laughs> um we have to keep doing the work and we oh, have to keep fighting. And we are doing the work. And uh, Karina, we have a very special event coming up at Fuerte in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah. So next Saturday, April 23rd, Chispa, Arizona is actually going to be holding an Earth Day festival and Fuerte will be part of it. So if you live in Maryville, again, one of the communities most impacted by climate change, come and join us at El Oso Park. It's going to be from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And, you know, we'll get to be in community and talk about climate solutions and how you can get involved. And we also have another event on Saturday. Carlos, do you want to talk about it? Yeah, claro. On, yeah, so next Saturday, we will be having our park and rent event from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the Maryville Community Center. We're going to be there in community and discussing a lot of different things that are affecting our community, such as rent and the fact that rent is really, really, really high. And a lot of our, our people really can't afford the prices so please if you're on the area or even if you're outside of the maryville community please come out and support it's it's super super important that we have a lot of people there yeah we're gonna have special guest speakers including representative solorio that will be addressing the crowd and you know letting us know what we can do to help combat these high rent prices so that wraps up our discussion on climate justice and the fact that it is also immigrant justice. I want to formally thank everyone involved in this episode, uh, the hosts, uh, Dani Orona, the, our guest speaker, uh, Karina Dominguez. Uh, graphics were also done by Karina Dominguez. 
I want to thank uh, Dominique Medina for the music, production and editing by our own Dani Orona and Karina Dominguez. And also want to shout out Fuerte, Frecuencia Alterna, uh, Jesus for really being like on top of it with the production and, and being here as well. And Cahoots, co-working spaces. Everyone, uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, hasta la próxima.